Welcome to Conscious Thinking, the podcast for the Conscious Advertising Network. I'm your host, Ete Davies, EMEA Chief Operating Officer at Dentsu Creative. The next few weeks sees the kickoff of the 2022 World Cup. It's the first Middle Eastern country and the first Winter World Cup that the world will have experienced. It's also the first global sporting event in world football since the pandemic. But regardless of the many firsts that there are to be acknowledged, it's fair to say this World Cup has been amongst the most controversial in recent times. There are many questions around how Qatar was awarded the World Cup, to migrant worker deaths, to wider human rights issues and controversies within the Qatari regime, and in particular its stance on LGBTQ plus communities. In this episode, we'll explore the topic of brand sponsorship and activism, with regards to controversial events, hosts or nations in the sporting arena. We'll also discuss what responsibility advertisers, brands, social media platforms, all connected with sporting events have towards representation, inclusivity and equality in sport, particularly when it comes to sport-related and brand sponsorship, marketing, advertising and PR. Joining me in the conversation are Amar Singh. He's a senior VP at MKTG Sports and Entertainment, which is part of the Dentsu International Network, and Lou Englefield, who is the director of Pride Sports. Thanks for joining me today. This subject has sort of dominated more headlines than I think the sort of political conversation instability around leadership in the UK and, and the US. So, you know, sport and politics, they say they never mix, but it's all that's covering the newspapers at the moment. So getting straight into it for each of you, I've read some commentary over the last few days about Qatar hosting the World Cup, and it sort of cited the ban on Russian athletes over the last few years or the boycott of apartheid era South Africa and the challenge to global sport and you know how it connects uh, communities and supposed to be about like equality and ex- inclusivity. And this World Cup should have been boycotted, let alone not awarded in the, the first place and more actions taken from football associations. But then when you look at it in the balance of things, sporting events and regimes that may be in questionable political situations or you know not upholding international sets of rights and values is not necessarily an uncommon thing we think of the olympics and nazi germany the 1978 world cup in argentina which was under the dictatorship at the time uh, the rumble and jungle in zaire more recently russia had a world cup there was the winter olympics in china as well as the normal olympics and then you know even joshua nustik in saudi arabia you know with them um, the boxing matches that are being held there Nevertheless, like running into this World Cup and and knowing the sort of global reaction that we've now witnessed or what could have been expected, you know, everyone was quite surprised, I think, at the awarding of the World Cup 22 to Qatar. Should we have seen more activism and more pressure from brands? You know, there's lots of brands that talk about purpose, that talk about inclusivity. They want to reach wider audiences. Many of those brands either sponsor the World Cup, um, you know, implicitly or explicitly, or they're sponsoring teams, or there is a halo marketing effect, which they'll all be benefiting from. So should there have been more pressure from the brands with regards to boycotting the World Cup or withdrawing the sponsorship for those actively involved? Or is there a bit of a calculated gamble from brands and advertisers that, oh, once the game starts and, you know, once the first ball gets kicked, everyone will sort of forget about it and just focus on the sports? I'll ask you first, Amal, what's your thoughts? I think it's really interesting, Ate, and I think the truth is, somewhere in between those two positions that you just relayed. I think on the one hand, you have uh, you know a situation where there have been some pretty robust conversations that have taken place between brands who have partnerships with FIFA, who have a relationship with FIFA. 
And a lot of those organizations did not choose or vote for the World Cup to be in Qatar. Uh, we know now that the, you know, the decision was made by the FIFA executive committee. And we know now that that decision and all the circumstances surrounded by that decision was, was mired in controversy. Yeah, even Blatter's acknowledged now that it shouldn't have happened. I mean, we obviously had a World Cup in Russia as well. So there's a question around that. But yeah, I mean, he's acknowledged that it was a mistake, his own words. Exactly. And I think a lot of those brands that are associated with FIFA have put some questions in, have 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 been looking at their own position on CSR have been looking at how the world has changed over the last few years and have had to come to terms with where they stand on issues such as diversity and equality and LGBTQ rights. So actually now having this World Cup in Qatar does not sit particularly easily with where these brands have had to move to and and, and what they're doing. And, you know, whether they're doing that successfully or not, I think is a matter for debate. However, you know, I think we're in a situation where FIFA are in a position where they really need to demonstrate to brands not just the power of this tournament but actually that they're getting their house in order and that's something that's been going on at FIFA of course as we know since since the end of Set Blatter which came you know 7 years ago so i would say the atmosphere between the partners and FIFA right now is probably a little frosty yeah i imagine it's pretty tense right because they they're ultimately compromised but you know the arguments is still there that they've all known about this for for several years you know both Russia and Qatar are announced at the same time so arguably given every brand looks at its marketing plan over the next year and long term and thinks about its role within society how it has a you know occupies a meaningful existence around com- consumers and builds a shared set of values is the truth of the matter really that because covid set live sport and sporting events back so much because you know nothing was happening and that obviously hit people's marketing and advertising potential and you know everything they can gain from sporting events and, and this being the first big one post lockdown globally and you know movement and, and you know everything sort of back to pre-pandemic levels was there just too much at stake for brands commercially to really put pressure because i imagine it's no mean feat to sort of reschedule and replan a world cup and so with the track already laid are they just sort of waiting to sort of quietly navigate yeah there tends to be a pattern with world cups that we've seen in in the past which is in the lead up to world cups there's reporting and concerns and controversy and we saw that in south africa we saw that ahead of Brazil. You know, Brazil, there was a lot of concerns around uh, public unrest and issues like corruption. With South Africa, it was crime. And with Russia, it was actually infrastructure. And also, you know, the, the Russian World Cup happened after they invaded Crimea. Yeah, they were at war, technically. So yeah. yeah, so that decision obviously has not aged well at all, the fact that that World Cup went ahead. I feel like the world has changed. Uh, we, there is evidence to suggest that the world has changed over the last four years. A lot of things have happened. What happens is FIFA... And to an extent, the brands that are activating around the World Cup are hoping and are counting on the moment a ball is kicked, people forget about all the controversy, enjoy the tournament. And, you know, as a spectacle, there's nothing like the World Cup. Uh, that's what FIFA have made their billions on, frankly. You know, the, 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 the strength and power and the eyeballs that, that they are able to draw to this incredible tournament. So people are counting, people invested in the game are counting on all of these issues to go away. If you look at the Euros in 2020, for example, or rather 2021, when they actually happened, there were a number of flashpoints that came up during the tournament. 
from the LGBTQ um, issue that happened with Hungary and where brands were playing catch up to actually figure out, okay, what are we going to say about this? We need to position ourselves and players speaking out about it, people like Harry Kane and Manuel Neuer to racism, you know, which obviously, you know, raised its ugly head after the, after the tournament, you know, England were a kick away from winning the Euros. Uh, instead, the next day we were dealing with the situation where three of our players were receiving racist abuse from so-called England fans. And you, you've got players taking the knee as well. So I think the world has changed a lot over the last four years. The pandemic had a, had an effect. George Floyd and his, you know, his, his murder had an effect as well. So we're in a much more socially conscious world. And if you think about social media and the platform it gives people... I fully expect that these issues are going to come up during the tournament. Yeah, I mean, there's no doubt, I think, as you pointed out, that conversation and sort of attitudes towards civil rights, human rights, you know, social issues has moved on even in the last you know, two, three years. And you know, the pandemic actually shown a spotlight on, on many of those things when people were at home and having to look both across social media and the news and some of the events that were happening. And there was a, a bit of a, dare I say, kind of global global awakening i mean it, it sort of takes me back to the point around consumers and and fans and ultimately the global football community and you know for a long time football's governing bodies at an international and local level have been striving to show that they're progressive and that they're more inclusive and it is a modern game you know from everything from the new leagues it's setting up to many of their campaigns against racism, you know, sort of uh, sexual equality and and so on. Lou, just from your position as director of Pride Sports, was there much engagement from either the FA or any of the sort of international football associations or sporting bodies with communities across the LGBTQ global community or, you know, inclusivity initiatives ahead of the run-up to Qatar with regards to the regime's stance on the LGBTQ plus community i mean russia was obviously the last place and that doesn't have a, a great history and i know there were some protests during that were there any learnings from russia and was there any sort of uh, attempt to get ahead of this i think in a way to be honest I, I think it's really interesting talking about covid and the impact of that on the game but i also think that maybe there's a bit of an impact that covid has had around activism as well and the world cup and our preparedness in a way for this World Cup and how it was going to be dealt with. I think one of the things, you know, listening to you that really, really strikes me is that not particularly around workers' rights and human rights, but particularly around the community that I work in and that I'm part of. I think what we see is quite an unusual situation because actually, because of a whole range of issues, LGBTQ plus people have historically been alienated from sport and particularly from football. And that's the case in many countries around the world. We could talk about that all day and we won't. But what that means is, is that the potential for that we are now seeing a growing presence, LGBTQ plus presence in football. So, for example, the UK now has over 50 LGBTQ plus fan groups. And some of those fan groups are massive. You know, if you look at like Leicester's LGBTQ plus fan group, it's enormous. You know, it's a real force to be reckoned with. But still, sport and particularly organised sport tends to be kind of quite marginalised within LGBTQ plus culture because of the levels of exclusion that people have faced over the years. So 
in terms of, of activism, what you have is a very marginal group of activists within a very marginal community being expected to respond to an absolutely enormous global sporting event with billions of pounds of income, huge brands involved. And I think that probably speaks to maybe the lack of kind of response that we've seen until fairly recently. Yeah, absolutely. And it's, um, I'm sort of reminded of the quote that people who are, um, being marginalized, you know, and sort of underrepresented by the system should not be the ones who are then asked to fix the system that's, you know, broken that they kind of inhabit. But, you know, unfortunately, it always seems to be the case that's sort of put to those groups. And the point you made around sort of uh, amplification, right, because the, the eyes of the world are, are going to be on this, arguably even more so now, because people will be looking to see how um, Qatar holds itself up and, you know, how, how the event kind of runs. It's it's a massive opportunity for both brands, but you know, by association, the the athletes that they sponsor, you know, a, any other sort of uh, influences that are connected to sport that will be active around the time of the sort of the campaign and the event to actually be allies, right, and sort of you know a- amplify the lack of inclusion and the the issues that are really wide ranging, everything from the LGBTQ plus community through to deaths of migrant workers. There are, you know, a host of other civil rights uh, issues with regards to, to women, to just, you know, general kind of uh, immigrants and, you know, class issues in Qatar. And again, to stress, Qatar isn't the only regime in the world that has these issues where a sporting event has happened. Now, it's sort of recently come to light in the press that there are various high profile, you know, athletes, entertainers who are both icons within the LGBTQ plus community and also wider, you know, sort of marginalized and under, underrepresented communities. They're either involved directly in the Qatari Football Association and promoting the event, or, you know, they'll be performing at it, or, you know, there'll be some sort of uh, association that they will be having with it, by which they will also be getting compensated by this. I'm really keen, I'll start with you, Lou, to hear both your point of view on this. You know, is it a case of some of these people talking out both sides of their mouths? Or does the other sort of counterweight argument hold in the fact that they should go there and make a stand and they should, you know, go there and sort of amplify the voices and you know and be allies of the underrepresented the old adage of you know politics and sport should be separate but i think it's almost impossible in this situation but yeah what's your point of view on that because they're all starting to come to light now in terms of who's taken money to promote this event yeah totally i think it's a really complex issue i think if people were taking the money and going there and enacting some level of allyship then that would be one thing. But from what I've seen from the people who were taking the money without naming any names, there is no allyship occurring. They're, it's just a job. You know, they're taking the money, they're doing the job that's being asked of them, which is to promote the country, promote tourism, you know, promote the World Cup, what, whatever. And at the same time, those people want to be allies to LGBTQ plus people, And, you know, and part of that, let's be honest, part of that is because, you know, there's a kind of like a rights based issue there. But partly that's also because the LGBTQ plus an ally market is enormous. You know, what does it represent? Something like five trillion a year or something. I mean, it's huge. So what we can't have 
is a situation in which people and brands ally themselves with LGBTQ plus people and then put themselves in situations where they're taking money to promote something that positively excludes us and most importantly excludes LGBTQ plus Qataris on the ground in Qatar. So on the subject of washing, I feel like the the term purpose washing is a topic that we've all become pretty familiar with. I'm surprised it's not in Webster's or Oxford Dictionary yet because we've got purpose washing, various sub iterations of it from greenwashing. Again, there's a there's a theme there with the the event across the World Cup to rainbow washing to sort of black washing. Are we experiencing sport washing from? not just the World Cup that's happening in Qatar, but across various other sporting events that, you know, we've sort of mentioned and covered by which sport has been used as a way to promote other aspects of the country and and ignore various aspects that actually exclude the global sporting community or, you know, worse yet, like human rights issues and oppressions. Yeah, Amar, what sort of other examples have you seen around this? And how does a brand stop falling into the trap of sports washing? Because, you know, the naive part of me assumes that some brands are trying to get involved in an event with all the positive intent, but maybe aren't looking at enough of the issues broadly. So yeah, it'd be good. Recent high profile examples that you've seen of, of sports washing. And then how how do you navigate that as a brand? You know, is it is it an impossible task really, given the complexity of the global world? Yeah, it's um, in the case of sport uh, on a business level, it feels like sometimes there's no going back. You know, we're at a point now where the influence and the money that has come, you know, from certain countries, certain regimes is pervasive, you know, is deep rooted, has spread really far into the game. I'm talking countries like Saudi Arabia and even China to an extent, and certainly Qatar and Abu Dhabi, you know, who have a sovereign wealth fund that effectively owns Manchester City, you know, the most successful team in the Premier League in this country now. So, we are, you know, through the looking glass when it comes to sports washing and, 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 you know, sports such as football. Now, if you're a brand and you're working in that environment, I think there are a few things to consider there. You know, if you're clear and you're comfortable with your position on the issues that really matter to consumers now and issues such as diversity and equality do matter to consumers now more than ever before. Issues such as where you stand on, you know, LGBTQ plus, where you stand on on human rights and, and and the rights of workers and all of these things. It's actually really important now. It's not something that is uh, something that is the, a small corner of your business. It's actually something that needs to run through your entire business. As I said, that's happened a lot to a lot of brands over the last few years because they've had to address these issues because of you know post George Floyd and because the pandemic really brought issues into focus and activism around the climate and climate change has really increased. So if you're confident in your position in that area, then I think it's really important that you look to exert your influence in sport. Now, I'm not saying that, you know, a World Cup going to Qatar is like a magic wand that's going to fix all the problems in Qatar. But if you have clear and robust policies, experts, uh, positions on things such as diversity and equality, LGBTQ+, etc., then you should be ready to engage with NGOs in that area. You should be ready to engage in that. And that is something that you're comfortable with doing because you have the infrastructure. So I think brands and organizations and corporations in sport that are well set up can actually identify 
the opportunities to actually help make the world a little bit more of a better place, which is what people want from brands now. Yeah, and I want to pick up on that point because has it highlighted, and I'd also like you to chip in on this as well, has it highlighted the fact that there's still quite a lot of work that brands need your point around infrastructure when it comes to diversity, equity, equality, inclusion. We see a lot of external work in terms of marketing, but you know, your point around sort of policy and infrastructure and influence on NGOs and partners has actually what this done is spotlighted that we still have many sort of global international brands that don't really have enough of that infrastructure that, as we said before, they couldn't get ahead of this early enough. They couldn't exert their influence early enough. So they've been found a bit lightweight you know, when the eyes of the world are uh, sort of looking at this issue. I mean, do you think it's exposed them a little bit? Lou, what's your thoughts on that? Well, I think it's really interesting. I'm not a kind of brand expert by any means, you know, I'm a kind of activist. But I think that that that, that point about engaging with regional NGOs, engaging with civil society in the region. Now, we know that there are particular challenges around that because of Qatar, but there are regional organisations. And it does beg some questions because we've had such a lead in to this event. We've known this event is coming for years. So brands have... uh, have almost had sort of so much longer to prepare. So the idea that they're being caught off guard at this moment, to me, as a complete outsider, suggests that there is something lacking there in terms of kind of infrastructure within organisations. One of the things that's really making me think is about the number of really sizable LGBTQ plus networks within large multinational corporations and what voice they've got around these issues and then that's making me reflect on how sport can seem like quite a marginal issue to a kind of group of people who've been marginalized themselves within it <laughs> if you understand what i mean yeah absolutely and it's it's a, it's a really good point you know the sort of coming back to the whole human aspect of it because obviously because of the podcast we're talking about brands and consumers and the kind of marketing activity around it but for the employees who come from those communities of a brand that is sponsoring the event and doesn't seem to be taking any clear kind of action or is missing the infrastructure that again is a difficult experience because it's that sort of marginalization in in exclusion on top of it amar is it actually even possible right so that there are many documentaries doing the works at the moment around fifa for example or other sporting bodies such as the ioc and and so on is it actually possible for brands and private companies to really influence organizations that are structurally as as big as government institutions and you know arguably have even deeper relationships because you know the money that changes hands behind these investments that can redevelop whole countries gives FIFA an incredible amount of global political influence like are the partners always a little bit back no matter how much infrastructure they put in place that's an interesting one it's a because on the one hand FIFA are only as powerful as the money that's coming in, the revenue that's coming in. So they are very much beholden to their partners, their commercial partners, and also the TV rights, the broadcasters, which is the lion's share of the revenue that they get around the World Cup. That really is their commercial model. But on the other hand, they sit on top of the the biggest golden egg in sport, which is the FIFA World Cup, which is, you know, 3.5 billion viewers. You know, it's, it's incredible, you know, the power that it has and the reach that it has. So it's really important that brands play their part i know that some of the partners involved in the fifa world cup for example 
have been quite heavily involved recently in engaging around the campaign to compensate the families of workers who have who have died uh, during the um, during the construction of the stadium in Qatar, for example. So there are certain conversations going on. I know partners have said to FIFA, lead us in this situation. How can we actually have a positive impact in Qatar? You've brought us here. We didn't ask to come to Qatar and deal with all of these issues, but we're here now and uh, you need to take the lead on that. And FIFA under Infantino, who's supposed to be the broom that was going to clear all the corruption and make FIFA this incredible organization again, have had to really get their house in order or at least show that they can help undo that decision. Infantino was not involved in the decision mm. to to take the World Cup to Qatar. So he can always step back and say, look, you know, I'm here to try and make the best mm. out of this situation. So that's given him a little bit of immunity, if you like, mm. in that in that respect. So, yeah, look, I think it's really important that the brands play their part in yeah. putting that commercial pressure. And they will have pressure from their consumers. And also, as you say, their employees. Employee employee engagement now is a really important objective in sponsorship. People want their staff and want their, uh, you know, their employees to feel proud of working for that organization. So within that organization, there will be employees who care about things such as diversity and human rights and LGBTQ plus and all of these things to say, well, what are you doing? How are we actually making the world a better place by partnering with FIFA? So those conversations are going on. I know that for sure. Yeah. And it, that, that point that, you, you know, you've both made around employees and fans and you know just audiences more so than the organizations and the companies themselves and their perspective on what they're expecting from the organizations and as you said the point that FIFA made the decision to go to Qatar the brands didn't do you think there is some level still existing just staying on the sporting institutions and not just FIFA but there is there still like a cognitive dissonance that they're displaying between yeah, the sporting bodies and the institutions versus brands, arguably, which are trying to be more connected and more culturally relevant audiences and communities and even athletes, right, who really care about these issues. And, you know, fans and audiences want athletes to be role models. Brands want to be associated with communities that sort of share their values. Sporting organizations hold up these values, but then don't seem to be governed or, or sort of driven by them and actually seem to be taking longer to evolve and i yeah i really love your perspective on that are the institutions lagging behind are they in slight denial or are they out of touch ultimately yeah right i think i think a lot of them are to be honest i think you know i work every single day in sport that's the environment i work in and I quite often think that the corporate sector on some levels from a, like an EDI perspective might be a bit of an easier place to work. I think that sport is very traditionally white. The, the kind of governance of sport is very traditionally white, very traditionally male, very traditionally older white male, certainly in Europe anyway, if we're talking about it on a European level and I suspect in, in other countries around the world as well, but on a European level, um, certainly. And I think that that has an impact. I think sport needs to modernise, definitely, in terms of its govern governance. We do still have kind of sports organisations that are kind of like the civil service of kind of sport, in a way, you know, where we want them to be more flexible, more nimble, to be more responsive, as you said, to the change in society and bring those changes about. And and they don't. So there, I do feel that there's a mismatch. And 
I mean, having spoken to colleagues in governing bodies, I remember once a colleague had attended an event around kind of LGBTQ plus inclusion that had a bit of a kind of corporate lean to it. And I think they were just really wowed by what was happening amongst brands that just wasn't happening in their organization, you know, and the amount of catch up they had to do. Yeah, it's 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 ironic, really, because there's an argument that the connection between teams, athletes, sporting bodies and their audience and their consumers is so direct compared to brands. It's, it's an immediate channel, right, because it happens around the event itself and everything attached to it that arguably they should be closer to it you know and, and sport is ultimately fan driven you know to your point that's where the revenues are yet they they do still seem out of touch especially if you compare them to let's say this generation of footballers now you know people are looking at these footballers who are going to the world cup and saying make a stand speak up uh, and i'm sure many of them will not that the owners should be on them you know they're footballers this is their career this is the pinnacle of their career and it, once again they didn't vote for the world cup to be in qatar but many of them have positioned themselves as as activists and they have presented themselves as allies to LGBTQ+, for example. They speak about socialist issues, for example. You know, take, for example, uh, Marcus Rashford, who's going with England. You know, Marcus Rashford successfully campaigned and lobbied the government to make a U-turn on um, free school meals for children. It's still baffling that a footballer had to tell the government to feed our children. But, you know, it's it, you're totally right. It's that they are taking the fight forward on social issues. And there's an argument that actually they have more, given the current climate, there's more trust and respect and authenticity there from the the athletes than, you know, the government institutions, which is, you know, a, a difficult place for them to sit in because ultimately that's not what they were there to do, but they are using their platform in a more responsible way than you know uh, others should be yeah and, and you know often we like to criticize footballers in society and say you know they're multi-millionaires they're out of touch with you know man on the street and so on but actually i think footballers have shown ha- have been very good at reading the room if you like in contrast fifa an organization like you say lou very much dominated by slightly older super wealthy white middle-aged men are not very good at reading the room we saw a couple of weeks ago infantino put a statement out saying um, calling on all the national federations stick to football let's just enjoy the football completely tone deaf whereas footballers if you think about them they are surrounded by diverse groups of people they often come from very diverse communities they often come from quite modest backgrounds humble backgrounds and actually i think they're more in tune now with what the fan thinks than the people that run football yeah it's it's a tricky spot to be in and just bringing it back to brands because you have people like infantino it's, it's actually saying that point of stick to football knowing that that will alienate vast swathes of the global football community, right? Because even if it's not just against the current issues with Qatar, these are human beings. And if there are issues around sort of human rights and civil rights in various different parts of the world, people will have a point of view on that and an expectation at a country level, but also at a team level. And again, if your brand's trying to market to those audiences where the partner that you're marketing with is essentially stifling or invalidating or negating the concerns of communities that you're trying to build connections with as a brand it just becomes a bit of a hot potato to sort of work with them playing sort of devil's advocate and for the the balance of things is there an argument that you know every every global brand that does believe in you know inclusivity and accessibility particularly of sport but also of its brand has to engage with countries whereby either 
cultures or values may sit outside of what you know we arguably in the western hemisphere in inverted commas consider our social value set and that it's the only way that you'll break the hegemony of global sporting events being dominated by either europe or north america which in again perpetuates the situation that lou talked about which is the infrastructure will never change until there's a point where there is more access and sort of inclusion of actually communities and countries that aren't part of that infrastructure and so you can only really tackle that by engaging you know like engaging in taking it to those areas this is uh this is what we call the gary neville yeah argument. yeah yeah <laughs> this is what i was trying to get to without singling anybody individual out but you know you you look at that argument and you go okay fine you have to sort of expose the issues out there and you hope that it drives change but then you also look at the empirical evidence we talked before about you know russia in crimea it was an invasion then i mean things have gotten dramatically worse since none of that has really ever held water but is that still always a good intent to have or is it just naive to assume that you can actually change social structures and regime change by opening your doors to the world? I think there is evidence to suggest, and, and this is from a friend of mine who's who's done a lot of work in Qatar, actually, around workers' rights and women's rights in the Middle East. And she said to me recently that actually the situation now compared to before the World Cup in terms of workers' rights, in terms of the abolition of the kafala system, which is a very controversial uh, you know, way of... Uh, managing and almost owning uh, workers is a lot better now. You know, I think unquestionably there has been some improvements uh, and the scrutiny of the World Cup and the eyes of the world has helped create those improvements. Do I think the World Cup is 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 a magical circus that once it leaves town, everything is, is great and all these problems go away? No. And do I think that Qatar, uh, you know, have, have wanted to host the World Cup because... They want the West to show them how to run their society. No. So, um, you know, there are lots of factors at play. And I think it's important to try and use these events to, as I said, work with NGOs, try and deliver some change, try and foster some progress in areas that are important. But at the same time, let's be honest about why the World Cup is in Qatar. Lou, just be good to get your... Your take on it, because, you know, obviously you've got politicians, many in the cabinet office talking about cultural sensitivity and it's slightly confused, I must admit, for fans going over there with regards to their own safety or even the sort of government's position as to like who will be attending from across the cabinet and, and, and so on. Do you think there's an argument around cultural sensitivity and that actually being there and, you know, taking the world to Qatar will help build solidarity for marginalized communities within it. And I mean, I know that's a very big existential question. And, you know, to Amar's point, there's some evidence for change. It's like the building consistency of change. But like, what's your point of view on that? I think on one hand, we're in a situation at the moment where it feels like all of a sudden there's a lot of pressure from Western media to talk about LGBTQ plus inclusion that hasn't been talked about for years, even though we've known, you know, the point we made earlier on, basically. And then all of a sudden, we've got Western media kind of exerting this pressure. I think one of the things that we need to be really careful about is that actually we don't leave minoritized communities more vulnerable as a result of Western pressure, because from some of the things that I've seen on social media, the way the concern around LGBTQ plus human rights is being shown is to be 
a Western abomination, a Western influence. And we, we saw that in Russia. I mean, you know, years ago, I was called a Western homosexualist because, uh, because I'd gone to Russia and talked to some activists there. And, oh, I don't know, it was published in the media. Someone got hold of the story and it was published in the media. So, you know, we know those narratives. We know those narratives exist. But what we don't want to do is leave LGBTQ plus Qataris in a more vulnerable position than they were before the World Cup and before all of those things started. So that for me is, is one main point. But then on the other hand, there is a situation now where um, I'm not sure whether you're both aware of Dr. Naz Mohammed. So um, Dr. Naz Mohammed is a physician from San Francisco. Oh, he's the first openly gay Qatari. I think I saw. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. And one of the things that he's done, because the World Cup is going to Qatar, is he has um, begun a kind of crowdfunder for an LGBTQ plus um, not-for-profit NGO uh, called the Alwan Foundation. Now, if the World Cup means that people donate to the Alwan Foundation and that is able to do work to support LGBTIQ plus people in Qatar, then there's been a positive thing. But it's a very, very complex situation. Yeah, and it's, it's such an important you know, point around exposing already vulnerable and marginalized groups due to western pressure or the pressure of western media and while rightly you know we're all talking about the issue and raising it that, that needs to also be approached with the right level of sensitivity and thought that we don't actually leave people in a in a more vulnerable situation and i and today actually i've got to admit it's the first time i've heard someone raising that in the conversation but it's 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 so important because the, a lot of it's being sort of latched onto because you know, arguably rightly so. Some may say that the press loves a bit of FIFA bashing, you know, given the corruption scandals and whatever else, but needs to be mindful of the um the damage it can cause, you know, if it doesn't find the right way to sort of address the issues without, you know, leaving people in a vulnerable situation. Yeah, and I don't think that any of the people that I've spoken to are saying there shouldn't be the conversation, that this shouldn't happen, that people shouldn't have concern but also just the way in which the conversation happens should be mindful of the vulnerability of local people. And also the other thing is, the other big thing we need to be thinking about is what happens when the World Cup's over and the circus has left town? What happens then? What happens to those vulnerable minorities then? And, and we need to be really mindful of that, both as activists and also as brands, I think. Yeah, 100%. It's what is the sort of lasting positive change? And particularly this situation to actually, you know, bring some sort of positivity to it. And at the moment, I, I you know, I must admit there's very little is being focused on. So what, what happens, you know, kind of afterwards, which is arguably even more more important than you know what's happening in in the run-up a point that both of you made around the sort of role of social media um particularly when it comes to social issues particularly when it comes to communities gathering around social issues the space that so um, social media occupies in the ecosystem of sporting fans and communities both interacting directly with their players and their teams but also sporting bodies and amongst themselves it's a mobilizer right for fans and you know there's an argument that sports fans were one of the communities driving social media 
long before everybody else got sort of turned on to it. The sad thing, obviously, is that, you know, we, we know the quite ugly side to social media and how it affects people on an individual level. But, you know, to the point you made earlier on, Amar, what we saw post the Euros and arguably the platforms being yet again slow to respond to what, you know, every person on the street will tell them was a risk, you know, kind of running up to that game and some of the trolling and toxicity that can exist in 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 social. Obviously, neither of you work for a social media platform, but what would you hope that in particular those platforms and again whether it's brands or whether it's fan communities are learning from what happened in the euros and thinking about how they approach and prepare for anything that could potentially happen in Qatar 2022 obviously we may have players taking the knee again we will definitely have players i hope wearing rainbow laces and doing even more that's you know likely to lead to conversations on social with both sides and brands were some brands were actually quite silent previously when it came to sort of taking the knee and try to either support from the sidelines or not engage with it at all are, are you either expecting or you know what would be your you know point of view i think again with social media they're only much like fifa they're only as you know the social media platforms are as powerful as the brands that put millions into them every year and, and brands are pouring millions into them into them you know brands have shifted their money from traditional media platforms such as newspapers and regional newspapers and re- local radio and all of these you know, more traditional forms of media into uh, social media platforms where the audience is, where the audience has grown, where people increasingly go to get their information, where people follow sport, where sports fans congregate, where football fans congregate, where football players have these huge platforms and help drive people to them. And there is an onus on those social media platforms to make sure that they are across the, the this Pandora's box that they've opened up, the issues that come with it. There is a good that comes with the anonymity of social media. We've seen going back to the Arab Spring, for example, you know, moments of, of, of great liberation that have come through from social media and from people organizing and galvanizing on social media. But then there's also been the bad that's come with social media, the fake news, the hate, the racism, the abuse that has come on social media. And football is often a lightning rod for this. And footballers can often be targeted all the time and you will see footballers regularly share their dms on instagram and share the messages that they get and you look at this and you think this is shocking like how can someone get this much abuse continue to go about what they do we saw a boycott around three years ago i think it was when footballers the football community came off social media for a weekend how effective that was, I'm not sure. I do know some social platforms are doing more to engage. Some of the organisations are doing more to engage with diversity and those sides of the football sector, certainly. The onus for me is on the brands because the brands put the, put the money into social media. Yeah, and it, given how we know it's affected, you know, sort of um, players and individuals in the past, as you said, with the messaging and the trolling, and there's an argument that if players sort of you know take a stand over this world you know the world cup they should be given some form of sort of protection and support from the social media channels but you know moreover we are talking about a global sport which you know the whole it's a family game everyone's that you know um entitled to come to it there there are children on these platforms there are children watching the games you know like what sort of global social standards are we sort of up hearing and ad- ad- adhering to and i think particularly when it comes to the lgbtq plus community and the role that that intersection of social media and the brands having it. Lou, is there anything that, you know, you would be sort of pushing from the point of inclusivity around sport for the social 
media platforms or the brands that heavily advertise in social to start advocating or planning for now, given some of the stuff we've seen in the past? Yeah, I mean, I think that, you know, we know that kind of racism and homophobia and sexism are are rife on football social media, and that really needs to be tackled. We're in a, a really interesting position, I think, in that we run a campaign called Football Versus Homophobia, um, and we've run it for the last 10 years. And literally, we have run our campaign on social media, you know, that has worked for us probably better than anything else that we've used because it's quick. You can be dynamic on social media, particularly on Twitter. You can comment on things. You know, we've really kind of built a really kind of unique football audience. But at the same time, you have the PFA bringing out a report last year from the Euros saying that the the most common form of abuse of um, of footballers is homophobic abuse. So we know, you know, we're in a situation where on one hand, we really value social media. But on the other hand, you know, there are massive issues around around social media and how it's abused and what the answer is to to that, you know, I'm not sure. There have been some benefits of anonymity on on social media. I totally agree with that. But yeah, I, th- I think that it's a great point that brands can bring pressure to bear around social media. And your point about children being involved in sport and being sports fans and about comments that are left on social media platforms and how those aren't removed and then how children see those things within a game that has felt quite exclusive to a number of minoritized communities for a really long time and the impact that has on their development as young people these are all really big issues we need to be tackling really yeah absolutely i mean if we're talking about growing inclusive global audiences which is to the advantage of both the sporting bodies the brands and so on then it it feels like something they should be making a priority on and i can't help but get past the fact that like during the height of the pandemic most of the social media platforms were able to block or manage any kind of COVID in, uh, misinformation just by the word tag. Yet when it comes to publicly well-known derogatory terms, it's an impossible challenge. Something for that just never quite stacks up for me. They have to do better. Uh, you know, when it comes to reporting abuse, when it comes to reporting accounts, time and time again, they show that they're not quick enough uh, to act. Particularly, you know, we've seen with with footballers getting homophobic abuse, racist abuse. I've seen firsthand when I used to work at West Ham United and we would put up the rainbow flag around the rainbow laces weekend. And some of the responses we would get from that really showed me the extent of the problem out there. And actually it happens to every club, it happens to every club. And, and, you know, the Premier League have done a lot, I think, a lot of good work around things such as Rainbow Laces, where they really work with the clubs to bring to the fore and work with those fan groups, uh, those LGBTQ plus fan groups that Lou mentioned as well, to, to really create um, a lot of attention around the issue. But there is clearly people out there who hold these Neanderthal views and offensive views, and they use social social media to to make their views known, and they seem to get away with it, and it's a big problem. If I was to close off with a question for each of you, a slightly provocative one, if you care to answer it, is you know, given some of the alleged corruption uh, in FIFA, but also like you know, similar allegations across other sporting bodies such as the IOC and, and sort of further on, 
Is there always a bit of an inherent risk for brands in sports marketing and event sponsorship? And do you think as a brand, you just need to price that in? Or are we at the point now, and we said it at the start of the conversation, that the changing social climate, consumer and fan activism, reevaluating the landscape around social values globally, that brands should really be thinking the long-term investment in you know sports sponsorship and sports entertainment because if if we said the you know, institutions and so on can't move fast enough should they really be rethinking how much they invest in in those areas or just accept that it's part of the beast and it will take time and it might move at a different speed to how they are trying to build relationships with their consumers and their audiences and their fans um, i'll ask you first and then come to you Lou. yeah it's it's a question again with a quite a complex answer i think I would always advise any brand looking to enter a partnership in sport or sponsorship of some sort to make sure that their values align closely with the values of that rights holder, whether that be an organization such as FIFA or whether that be British volleyball. It's really important to make sure that there is due diligence on both sides. Is this brand going to harm our reputation? Is this partnership going to harm the reputation of the brand? So that's like a fundamental thing that should happen on both sides. The problem is when you're talking about global partnerships, it becomes hugely complex because there is no global set of values. I think we can sit here and we can all agree that uh, there are certain uh, laws um, and certain things that have transpired in Qatar, which are abhorrent and quite universally abhorrent. But if you're talking about an organization like FIFA, which has got a World Cup in the Middle East, and there are a lot of people who feel very strongly that the Middle East is a region of, of great passion for football and probably was due to have a World Cup at some point. You know, the next World Cup is at, in the USA and Canada and Mexico. And look, there are a lot of people in this world who who find the USA. Depending on the political environment in four years' time, yeah, but there'll be questions asked about the US as well, I'm sure. Exactly. So, you know, if you're, if you're, if you're talking a global partnership, look at Formula One, for example. The next Formula One Grand Prix is in Abu Dhabi. Formula One had their Grand Prix not long ago in, in Austin, in Texas. Now we know in Texas there are certain laws that feel completely backward right now. So it comes with the territory, I think, with global partnerships. And as I say, I'll go back to the first point I made, Ete, which is if you as an organization know where you stand on the issues that matter to your consumers, to your employees, then you should be able to navigate where that partnership takes you if you've made the right partnership. And, you know, you absolutely are in a position where you can scrutinize what your partner is doing. Now, it's it's complicated, as I said, because countries like Saudi Arabia and Qatar and, and, and countries like that are pervasive in, in their influence in sport now. So you should be asking yourself that how how can you engage with that situation in a positive way for the values that matter to your organization? Yeah, absolutely. Lou, would you care to build or sort of comment on that should should brands just be reevaluating sports marketing as a whole to some of the points Amar said a global partnership is always going to carry some level of inherent risk that may end up with you moving further and further away from the values that you hold or do you sort of price it in i think well obviously there are some global brands that are involved in sponsoring the World Cup. So, you know, presumably those brands are facing similar issues in some ways. You know, do they continue offering their products in countries where there's war, for example, or, you know, so I think it's not a case of there are brands 
they are in climates that are, say, inclusive or human rights focused, and then they're sponsoring global events. You know, there's there's also the matchup between kind of global brands and and global events and global organisations like FIFA as well. I think the world is a very diverse place. The world is a change, rapidly changing place. And I think that, you know, what I would hope is that brands would, when they enter relationships, that they would give consideration to that due diligence, that they would want to be able to provide some influence if there's a possibility of doing that. And I appreciate that there are different ways of doing that. You know, we're not expecting everybody to be an activist and we're not expecting brands necessarily to be activists. But what we are expecting, if brands are going to sell themselves on those kind of key points, then they've got to step up, basically. You you can't have it both ways. Well, yeah, there we go. Purpose washing. And um, well, actually, we can't leave on the note of purpose washing and not talk about BrewDog. I'm not sure if you've seen the campaign, either of you, where um, yeah, BrewDog have come out and they're the anti, anti-sponsors of the World F uh, Cup, as they are putting it. Um, and they are doing all the proceeds from um, one of their ranges of beer towards human rights, civil rights sort of uh, issues. Whilst it appears still doing distribution deals in Qatar, still showing the games uh, in you know many of their bars, and um, and then there's a whole saga of things around uh, Brewdog generally. A point of view on on the campaign, um, you know, just to close off on that point around purpose washing and, and walking the talk really is what we're saying. Yeah, I mean, for anyone who's been following Brewdog over the last few years and, and some of their sort of shenanigans and stunts, it's it's um, it's not a surprising situation i mean they have form for coming out making big announcements uh getting all the praise and and positive sentiment on social media and then leaving the details to figure themselves out afterwards mm. i'm thinking about the time they said they were offering their pubs to the government as vaccination centers i don't think that ended up happening because the government said or the nhs said we can't use pubs as vaccination vaccination centers you know uh, or when they created hand sanitizers and the first batch didn't even meet the medical standards, they tend to go big with the announcement and then figure it out after. And that doesn't often work out. And I think in this instance, I think they're benefiting from a bit of the glow of publicity. But of course, a lot of PR and marketing professionals, and for those of us who work in purpose-driven marketing, like I do, you know, the golden rule is always the act is more important than the ad. Make sure you get that right. Make sure you get your ducks in a row in terms of the work you're doing then go and shout about it. Unfortunately, Brewdog do things the opposite way around. And as you say, Ete, you know, they're rightly being called out for, they're still showing the World Cup in their pubs all over the country. They're going to make a lot of money out of this World Cup that they're supposedly boycotting. Yes, they're giving some proceeds from one of their products to human rights groups. They didn't name the human rights partner. I would always say you should name that partner. Maybe human rights groups are struggling to align with a, with an organization that has been accused by its own staff of yeah. having a culture of fear and toxicity i don't know and of course you know they also they've been called out for having a, a, a pub in shanghai you know which they did a lot of publicity around i mean maybe human rights was not an important topic for them there so am i a fan of the campaign no i'm not I wrote a newsletter about it this weekend where I've said that they're the first post-truth purpose marketeers. You know, all the vibes, none of the actual substance. Echo so much of what you're saying. It also comes back to the point in terms of the length of time 
that brands have had to sort of prepare for this conversation and, and, and deal with it. It's so opportunistic to be doing it within a couple of weeks. You know, if you really wanted to be an anti-sponsor, given the you know, nearly four to six years, there is a bunch of activity, to your point, that you could have been doing around your distribution deals, around like alternative events during the course of the competition, around working with, you know, civil and human rights organizations. The time was there. So to basically do some posters, essentially, and, you know, ad, ad campaign with three weeks to go doesn't feel like it was pre-planned necessarily from the point of view going this event is happening in this country. It doesn't hold true to our values. We're going to do something about it right now, you know? Yeah, yeah. I don't know if you have any thoughts on the campaign, if you want to build on anything that Amar just said. Yeah, I mean, I just, I just like to say that I totally agree with your point that brands have had a long time to, to think about this issue and to deal with this issue. And I think it's really interesting that, you know, football versus homophobia is a campaign. It's a, like a really small campaign, largely volunteer run. In the last few weeks, we've been absolutely inundated with media requests. We've had approaches from, I'm not going to say hundreds of brands, but we've had approaches from people who suddenly are kind of trying to get on the back of the, of the World Cup. And for small not-for-profits, that's just overwhelming. You know, it's, it's just like, come to us, think about the issues, you know, come to us, get your house in order, know what you want to say, identify us as a partner. And we're not, we're not fond of gimmicky campaigns. I mean, this kind of reminds me of a, another brand whose name I won't mention that was a, a betting company that's been very kind of gimmicky in the past. And, um, and some of their campaigns, I think, have been really problematic. So, yeah, um, no, not a fan of this one. Yeah, absolutely. And as you say, it's that be in it for the long haul and, and be strategic how you approach it. And, you know, most importantly, the, the point that you, you both made earlier on and to wrap it all up is what are you going to do after? You know, it's, it's all well and good donating some money in the run up to it as part of a campaign. That issue doesn't go away. You know, those people are no less marginalized or no less vulnerable. So how are you going to actually build some longevity into it? Because if not, then it is simply just an opportunistic PR stunt. Yeah. You know, to be completely honest. You could say purposes for life, not just for Christmas. Oh, yeah, there you go. There's a line. I can tell you work in an ad agency. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Thank you very much, both of you, for, you know, what's been a, a great conversation. As I say, I hope that, you know, the next few weeks, there's some sort of lasting positivity that comes out of this, because that, that's the opportunity really for brands, players, fans that are there. So, we, you know, we can we can only hope that, you know, people, to lose point, find a way to not make marginalised groups more exposed, but actually try and be part of lasting change for those communities and those, those groups in Qatar, but also globally as well, you know, because this issue isn't isolated to one country, although the spotlight is, it is there. <laughs> Thank you to our Densu Creative editorial and production teams who are powering this whole series. The Nerve Music Library for our soundtrack and to all of you for listening. If you've enjoyed this conversation, you can find lots more like it by subscribing to the series wherever you get your podcasts. To learn more, go to ConsciousAdNetwork.com forward slash podcast. Podcast.